Hello and welcome, <coughs> my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 243 of To the Bible in One. So just a brief reminder <coughs> of what you should have read to have been prepared for this discussion that we're going to have. You should have read Job chapters 37 through 39, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 13 through chapter 5 verse 10, Psalm 44 verses 9 through 26, and Proverbs 22 13. So we're still in Acts chapter 27, we're going to finish this up, so we're going to be in chapters, uh, we're going to be in verses 21 through 44. So what we have seen so far is we saw this chapter start out really, really normally, right? But we've but as we have already seen, it quickly turns into quite an adventure, right? So we have seen the weather play havoc on this journey to Rome, on Paul's journey to Rome, along with playing havoc with his companions. So this started off with contrary winds that forced them to take a different route than what they had planned. And it ended with them being stuck in the middle of the Mediterranean version of a hurricane. A Mediterranean version of a tropical cyclone, of a warm water cyclone. And as we ended yesterday, we read that Paul's traveling companions had all given up, had given up all hope of being rescued. However, as we're going to see today, one person had not given up hope, and that was Paul, because he knew what God had planned for him and for his traveling companions, right? So let's pick up now in verse 21, which says, After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice. You have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, and not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So let's stop right there. So that's verse 26. So what we see here is that in order to save their lives, they had to run this ship aground on somewhere, right? So now let's pick up now. So we're told they meant save their lives, they've got to run their ship aground. That means they've got to destroy this ship in order to save their lives. Let's pick up now verse 27, which says, On the fourteenth night we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. And about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. 
They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. So they're getting closer and closer to shore because they took soundings at first, found they were in 120 feet of water. Now they took soundings again and now they're in 90 feet of water. So they've lost 30 feet of bottom depth. Fearing that we would be, I'm picking up on verse 29, fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. They prayed for daylight. As I already said, right, to save their lives, they now had to run their ship aground somewhere. And so we're told that two weeks after they had reached this conclusion, right, they were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. They were still being driven across this sea. Right? But they thought they had spotted land at some point in time. And what they wanted to do when they thought they spotted land, they started to test the depth of the water repeatedly to know if they were actually getting close to land. And they found they were in 120 feet of water. Then they found, they tested it later, they were in 90 feet of water. So in other words, they were getting closer and closer to land because as you get closer and closer to land, the, the seashore slopes up, starts to slope up. So what, what's happening as, they, as, the, as they're taking more soundings, they're getting closer to land. So then we're told in the verse that they were that they feared they would be dashed against the rocks. So they dropped four anchors from the stern and that they prayed for daylight. So, they, so why did they do that? So they were afraid they were going to be dashed against the rocks. They were afraid they were going to run aground on some reef. So what did they do? They dropped four anchors off the stern of the ship to slow the sheep's progress to keep the ship back so it don't run aground on this reef before they had planned for it to run aground. Right? So what you understand here, right, is this is the proper procedure to follow. And that while it was the proper procedure to follow, it was also very dangerous. So now let's pick up in verse 30 which says this, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. So let's keep reading now. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. So what's going on here, right? So yes, it would have been a legitimate procedure to set anchors at the bow of the ship from a smaller boat. But what are we told, right? That in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending pretending is the keyword there, they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. They were only pretending, right? So this entire process that, that, that would have been a legitimate process if they had done it right was designed to lock the ship in a 
single orientation because it was designed to keep the ship going in one direction and that one direction was into the wind in this case however however what we should note is that it would it should have only taken a single sailor to take the anchor into the lifeboat and to drop it off and to set it but what are we told here the sailors not a single sailor, but all the sailors, right? We're gonna do this. So what so what are we seeing here? We're seeing a large number of sailors climbing into the lifeboat, which was a suspicious sight. So how does Paul respond to this suspicious sight? He responds by saying this unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Ooh. So is Paul now contradicting the vision that he reported earlier, the vision he reported when, when we read that, uh, so keep up your courage, man, for I have, oh, excuse me, verse 4, and, uh, do not, uh, verse 24, excuse me, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you, so keep up your courage, man, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. It's Paul now contradicting this vision that he had from God, that everybody's going to be saved, you know, Paul's not contradicting this vision. And there are two reasons Paul is not contradicting this vision. So the first one is that prophecy is very often conditional. It's based upon something that we have to do in order for the prophecy to be fulfilled, right? So if God said, not any, not, none of y'all are gonna die, and if the sailors had not set the anchors, and if Paul had said, well, God said, you're not going to die, so we'll let these sailors go, they would have all died because in order for them to be saved, the sailors had to stay at their posts to maintain this ship in such a way that they could all be saved. So that's the first reason. Right? The second is that the warnings may simply have been a wise observation of the need of the sailors to stay and reach the ship. You gotta have the sailors there in order to beach the ship correctly. No sailors, no beaching ship correctly. No sailor ship runs aground too soon. Ship breaks up too soon. Everybody dies. Not good thing. You get the point. So in other words, <coughs> so the sailors' attempt, we see, was thwarted by casting the lifeboat adrift. Verse 32 says, so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. They cut it off. They removed the sailor's temptation for abandoning the ship. And what this ultimately means is they would have to swim for it later, right? But... But the, the key to understanding this, right, is that yes, they would all have to swim for it later, and yes, some of them probably did not know how to swim, but the key is that by cutting, by doing this, by making this necessary decision to remove the temptation of the sailors to depart from the ship, to abandon the ship, and leave them alert, right, they would all, they would all live and they would not all die, right? So what we see in these three verses, verses 30 through 32, we see that 
the truths of God's sovereignty and of human responsibility are preserved. In other words, we see that God is still sovereign and that we have a responsibility and a role in and part in maintaining that. We can't just say God is sovereign and we're going to sit back and not do anything. We have to take responsibility for our actions. We have to take the actions necessary sometimes in order for the promises of God to come true. So now let's pick up in verse 33, <coughs> which says this, Just before dawn, Paul urged all of them to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, You have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair on your head. On your head. Right. So after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some bread themselves. Although there were 276 of us aboard. So let's stop right there for right now. Right. So what's going on here? Why are we talking about this, right? So such a heroin trip as they have just gone through, right, was likely to wreak havoc on their nerves. So again, Paul takes action to help his fellow passengers, right? So we're told again they hadn't eaten in the entire 14 days that this has gone on. They haven't eaten anything. So in other words, they're starving by now. They're starving is not a way to make <coughs> decisions. You don't make good decisions when you are starving. So Paul is essentially telling them, you gotta eat in order to make good decisions. You gotta eat in order to keep up your strength. Right? So whether or not they had not eaten due to nausea or to nerves is unstated. And it was probably a little bit of both. They were probably so sick to the stomach from the wind churning up the waves and the waves causing the ship to bump up and down, move side to side, do all kinds of crazy things that they didn't want to eat because if they'd eaten it, they'd have thrown it right back up. And if you, if you feel sick to the stomach, you don't want to eat. You get that part. And if you're nervous, you don't want to eat neither. Right? So what does Paul do? He says they have a meal. And he then encourages his shipmates. That's what we see here. So again, he predicts, right, that they would all make it out alive. We're told that this ship contained 276 people. So you're going to say, well, hold on, hold on. That's quite a lot of people. No, really not. That's not a particularly high number of people to be on board such a ship. Because you see other ancient sources note that ships of this size could carry 600 passengers. So in other words, this ship was not able to get a full complement of passengers for this voyage. So it was about half full at this point in time. So now let's 
get to this last verse in this section, which is verse 38, which says, When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. So we had previously seen in verses 18 and 19, right? Where it says... Uh, we took such a violent battery from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So they had already started to lighten the load, right? by throwing the cargo overboard along with other things overboard in hopes of saving this ship. So now they have finished eating what they know is going to be probably their last meal on board their ship. So they throw the rest of the cargo, they throw the rest of the grain, they throw the rest of the things that are going to make a profit for this ship overboard. Why? Because they now, because now they were planning to beach this ship and they need this ship to be as light as possible right, so that it's not going to run aground hard. It's going to run aground relatively easy. So it's going to run up and over and not just ram into and sit there. Right? So we know that this cargo they threw out would have likely been in M4, which would be clay jars in the shape of inverted teardrops, and again, this action would have considerably lightened the ship in order to get it as close as possible to the shore. So now let's pick up now in verse 39, which says this, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or any other piece of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. So what's happening here, right? So they found a suitable bay. And once they found this suitable bay, they took action to beach this ship. So they cut the anchors, and they unlashed the rudders to let the wind have its full force. In other words, they wanted the wind to drive this ship towards the shore now. They wanted this ship to essentially crash and burn. They've ridden this vessel as far as they possibly can. They know the only chance they have of surviving now is to crash this ship. And so they do what they can now to prepare for this. Right? <clears throat> so how do they do that? So we're told they unlatched the rudders. So let's talk about these rudders. So these rudders we're talking about here are more likely 
steering paddles that were fixed from the deck rather than the modern instrument that's located directly underneath the ship. So in other words, this would be kind of like the rudder that you see on small water boats that's attached to that trolling motor that you kind of turn, right, and the ship goes in that direction. So it'd be almost like a tiller and less like a rudder because the rudder would be completely under the water that you don't see. This leads from top of the ship on down and probably had a big post thing attached to it that you can turn this way and the ship went that way and turn this way and the ship goes this way. Get what I'm saying? So it's not a modern rudder. What I'm talking about a modern rudder is that you have a nice big wheel that you turn and the ship goes whichever direction the wheel turns. No, no, no. Not that kind of thing. Right? So they tied these rudders down to keep the ship going in one direction. Now they untied these rudders because they're not so much worried about being as precise now. Right. So they so what do they do then? Next they then hoist they then hoisted the mainsail to get as much wind as possible. Why? Because they want as much speed as they can get. This is not an operation that you do slow, this is an operation that you do fast. You want this to be fast and quick. So you so you hoist the mainsail so that you're now running with the wind straight in to the beach. Right? <clears throat> so eventually we're told the ship was beached and then it was slowly ripped apart by the surf. So as the ship is being ripped apart by the surf, right, we're told another part of this story. We're told in verse 42, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. So what is happening here, right? So the soldiers hatched a plan to kill the prisoners, and this plan was a common safety measure that would be used to keep the soldiers out of trouble for losing any of their prisoners, right? So why would they have been in trouble? Why would they want to kill their prisoners? You don't often hear people who are charged with guarding prisoners wanting to kill them, right? Because the prisoner is their responsibility. You kill the prisoner, you get in trouble for killing the prisoner. Well, in this particular case, if you lost the prisoner, you got in more trouble than if you said, hey, the ship was sinking. We killed the prisoners so they wouldn't have the possibility of escaping, right? And the reason they did this was because they rightly believed the repercussions would be severe if some of the prisoners had escaped. Because we know that it was Roman custom at that point in time that if a prisoner escaped, the guard took his place. And those that the prisoner had a life sentence, that guard then served that prisoner's life sentence. If that prisoner was sentenced to death, that guard was then put to death. So they were planning to do this to keep them their own selves safe. Right? So the we see the centurion rejects this plan, as was his right of declaring officer. 
of this group of souls, thus sparing Paul's life. So you see, Paul's prophecy is starting to come true now, right? Paul saw this vision, and he was told, ain't none of y'all gonna die. Y'all all gonna live, y'all all gonna survive. And now all of a sudden, we see that coming to fruition through a Roman centurion, right? So apparently this Roman centurion, right, had such great respect for Paul personally, and he took, and therefore he took seriously the goal of getting Paul to Rome. He knew Paul was a Roman citizen. He knew Paul wasn't going to escape. He knew Paul wanted to get to Rome. He knew the people with Paul wanted to get to Rome. So this whole thing could be ended in the right way possible. Right? And so that's what we're going to pick up tomorrow. As we see Paul and his companions on the island that is identified in the text as being the island of Malta. So in order for you to be prepared to discuss that, you need to read Job chapters 40 through 42, Second Corinthians chapter 5 verses 11 through 21, Psalm 45, 1 through 17, and Proverbs 22 verse 14. Hello and welcome, <coughs> my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 244 of Through the Bible in One Year. <coughs> so just a brief reminder of what you should have read to have been prepared for today's discussion. You should have read Job chapters 40 through 42. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, Psalm 45, 1 through 17, and Proverbs chapter 22, verse 14. So we have now finished Acts 27. We're now moving into Acts 28, <coughs> which is the last chapter in the book of Acts. So we're going to be covering the first 10 verses. So we're going to be covering verses 1 through 10. <coughs> So we have now seen Paul and his traveling companions survive this massive hurricane-like storm in the Mediterranean. So they have now been shipwrecked on an island that we're going to learn today is called Malta. And we're going to see two important things while Paul and his traveling companions are on the island of Malta. So we're going to see Paul be bitten by and survive that bite from a viper. And we're going to see Paul ministering to the inhabitants of the island of Malta. So now let's start in verse 1. So we're going to take it through verse 6 for this first section <coughs> which says this once safely on shore we found out the island was called Malta the islanders showed us unusual kindness they built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, 
This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Said he was a god. <coughs> Wait, so what do we see here? We see the natives of this island called Malta, which is the actual island called Malta today, which is what most historians say was, and that's what we're going to go with, because can't we find any other evidence to point to this being any other island in this part of the world? So we know that the natives were extraordinarily kind to this group of travelers. We're told they built a fire for this for the shipwrecked people for the simple reason, because it was rainy and cold. So in the process of building this fire, right, though, we're told Paul was bitten by a viper. So we're going to come back to that, we're just, so we got to, we're going to talk about what happened after that for just a minute. We're going to come back to the, to the viper part in just a minute. So hold off on that for a few minutes. So the people knowing that Paul was a prisoner, led them to assume, bad mistake, you don't ever assume anything, Led them to assume he was the worst kind of criminal possible, and that would be a murderer. So, because he was a murderer, in their mind's eye, because he escaped from the sea, and now this viper jumps out of the fire and bites him, right? Justice demanded his death, which should have come in the sea, but which now came through, you know, in their mind's eye, come through this snake bite. So when Paul did not die, they jumped to the conclusion that he was a god. So what does that mean? That means that idolatry as a worldview, their idolatry was dominating their perception of reality. They thought he was a murderer because the snake jumps out of the fire and bites him which would have been a natural reaction if you were a snake laying on some driftwood and you got through on the fire, what would you do? You'd jump out and bite somebody too. So now let's talk about the elephant in the room, right? What's the elephant in the room? Glad you're so glad you want to know that, right? The elephant in the room is the fact that there are no venomous snakes on the island of Malta today. In fact, there are very few snakes on the island of Malta today at all. So this problem then is very simply undressed in this quote. So here's what this quote says. <coughs> this quote says, Now there are no more snakes on the island of Malta, because as in other relatively small islands, they were gotten rid of by human settlers. Makes sense. When we settle a place, we tend to kill off the things we fear. That's why there aren't very many wolves in Europe. That's why there aren't a whole lot of wolves in the United States. That's why you see when, when humans move in, snake populations diminish. We don't like them. We fear them. 
That's because we have a really, really hard time distinguishing between the ones that are poisonous and the ones that are non-poisonous. <coughs> so let's go on with this quote, right? So this was aided and abetted by the introduction of predators like domesticated cats. So we introduce predators into an environment. What happens? They kill off the snakes. So cats like to hunt things. They'll hunt and track down and kill snakes. So will dogs. So will other predators like weasels and things like that. They'll hunt them down and kill them. However, so I'll continue on the quote. <coughs> However, at the time the Apostle Paul was there, there were many of them as can be observed in the biblical text. In other words, because these people would have known what kind of animals lived on their island, we can now rightly presume that there were venomous snakes on the island of Malta at the time of Paul, and that this was not just some allegorical thing like some people will claim when they talk about this particular story. So now, now that we know that it is possible at the time of Paul for snakes to have been on the island of Malta, let's explore what type of snake, particular type of venomous snake, could have possibly bitten Paul. So in order to do that, <coughs> I'm going to understand what types of venomous snakes are found in Europe. There are three different types of vipers found in Europe. That, that, that is the only type of venomous snake found in Europe is vipers. And there are three different kinds. So we're going to start with the most common, and we're going to work our way down to the one that is the least common. So the most common, <coughs> I'm going to give you the Latin name, and then I'm going to give you the common name. So the first one is the Vipera Barros. So this is the common European adder, or common European viper, which is extremely widespread and can be found throughout most of Central and Eastern Europe, and as far as East Asia. So in other words, this is the snake that has the most that has the widest geographical spread of the three vipers, the three poison snakes that you find in Europe. <coughs> so its range includes northwestern Europe, that would be places like the north coast of France, Holland, all the way down into um, across parts of southern Europe and most of eastern Europe, so in other words, it stretches all across the north and down in through central Europe and across parts of what we now know as the Balkans. Right? However, it is not generally found in southern Italy, which makes this particular snake an unlikely, but still probable candidate for biting Paul. Right. So that's the first one. The second one is the Vipera aspis. So this is commonly known as either the asp, the asp viper, 
European Asp and the Aspidic Viper. So what do we know about this particular snake? So bites from this particular snake can be more severe than from the European Adder. So not only what do we mean by that? By, by more severe. So not only are they more painful, but also about four percent of all untreated bites are fatal. So most bites from a common adder or the European adder are not fatal. Small, small percentage. You have to be a child or you have to have some underlying medical condition that will cause that bite to be fatal. The the European ass bite is much more serious. It's much more deadlier than its more common ancestor, than its more common relative. Right, so let's note this particular snake <coughs> is native to France, to Andoria, northeastern Spain, extreme southwestern Germany, that'd be in the southern Black Forest, Switzerland, Italy, and northwestern Slovenia. So, in other words, it's much farther south than the common European adder. It exists down in southern Italy. It could quite possibly have been on places like Sicily and Malta. Don't know for sure, but it is a foreground possibility. Which makes this particular snake, the European asp, as being the most likely candidate for being the viper that bit Paul. <coughs> so the last s viper that you find in Europe is the viper emodotus, which is the horn viper, the long-nosed viper, the nose horn viper, or the sand viper. Those are its most common names. Those are the names you're gonna see it referred to in literature as. So it is found in southern Europe, mainly northern Italy, the Balkans, and parts of the Middle East. It comes nowhere close to being in the southern part of Italy, or anywhere close to Malta or Sicily. It's more on the Adriatic side of Europe, not on the western mid side of Europe. And <coughs> it is considered to be the most dangerous of the three vipers native to Europe, but but due to its limited range, it is extremely unlikely that this is the type of snake that bit Pong. So what do we get from all that, right? The snake that bit Pong was probably the European asp, right? That is the most likely candidate, which means there's a very good reason that Pong survived this bite. Because with only 4% of untreated bites being fatal, that means there's a 96% chance that you will survive. That means you have to be incredibly unlucky to die from this snake bite. We know that they would have thought that you would have automatically died from this snake bite. <coughs> they were probably going off what they had seen in the past. 
and maybe have gone off what they saw happen for people that had underlying medical conditions, people that were not physically fit, etc, etc, etc. So with that being said, let's now move into verse 7 so we can finish up this portion. <coughs> which says this there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius the chief official of the island he welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days his father was sick in bed <coughs> suffering from fever and dysentery Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him when this is when this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So, what do we see here? So we see here that after the Maltese people had been so hospitable to the crew, a wealthy landowner by the name of Publius <coughs> showed this team of people even more graciousness. So what does this title Publius mean? It means a leading man. And this is known from inscriptions on the island. So we know this man existed on the island of Malta because there are inscriptions on the island that describe him, but it is unclear from these inscriptions whether he was a Roman official or a local official. He could quite possibly have been both. We just do not know. There's not enough information for us to make any kind of reasonable conclusion about that. <coughs> So we're told that Paul's healing of Publius's father led to the rest of the islanders coming to the Apostle Paul if they were ill. We're also told that the islanders honored this new group either through praise or pay or both. So in other words, they gave them praise and they gave them pay. Praise is nice, pay is better. Especially if you ain't got no money and you're traveling to a place where you're gonna need some money when you get there. So what do we see here, right? We're seeing here that not only was God providing for the islanders, right? He was providing the islanders with a means for their sick people to be healed. But he was also providing resources for this team of men that was headed to Rome on a God-given mission because they were in for a lengthy stay in Rome. <coughs> and that is where we will pick up tomorrow as we conclude Acts with Paul's arrival in Rome. Paul's going to now get to Rome and Paul's going to spend the rest of his life in Rome, traveling from Rome to other parts, quite possibly, but he is ultimately going to come back to Rome to be executed. And so in order for you to be prepared 
for that discussion, you need to read Ecclesiastes chapters 1 through 3, 2 Corinthians 6 verses 1 through 3, Psalm 46 1 through 11, and Proverbs 22 verse 15.